Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome. You are listening to the very last two-digit episode, episode 99. Whoa, that feels like such a milestone. I'm Danielle Delamar, and I'm glad you are here. So I can't think of anyone better to sort of mark the transition from the two digits to the three digits, then Dr. Jen Berg, who I interviewed for today's episode. Jen has an incredible story. She was a math professor, tenured, who did a lot of amazing work and was very committed to her students and to her university and to the idea of public education. And she'll tell you the story about how she started with this sort of nine-year plan to leave. (laughs) But then Jen shortened it to three years, and then she shortened it even more. (laughs) And what I find most interesting about this interview is that she talks like someone who is in recovery from addiction, right? And in this case... It was work addiction. And now her recovery is what she calls Project Jen, (laughs) which I think is awesome. How many people just turn totally into themselves and say, you know what? I'm going to work on me. I'm going to break bad habits. I'm going to learn new things. I'm going to be willing to fail. And I'm even going to have a support system in place that ensures that I do those things. So here is Dr. Jen Berg, everyone. This is an incredible story about embracing transition. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation today. I'm talking to Dr. Jen Berg. Jen, how's it going? It's going pretty well. I feel like I know you a little bit more than I actually do know you because you've been (laughs) friends with my husband for a long time. high school. You all have known each other a long time. We have. We absolutely have. We used to do the absurd drinking game together where the Henry Nielsen song, Lime in the Coconut, we had to take a drink every time he said Lime in the Coconut. That was ridiculous. <laughs> Who That's does awesome. That? <laughs> no, no, my liver is still not recovered from that. And so, and so, I'm, so then that makes me think about um, like who you were back then. Cause I know you said you were like a first gen uh, college yeah. student. Like at that point, did you think, oh, you know, I think I'm going to be a math professor someday. <laughs> <laughs> no, God, no, 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 no. I mean, one of the reasons why I knew your illustrious nut jumping husband uh is sorry that picture was too funny um is that we were both in speech and debate 
And I, I, when I was in high school, I wanted to go to college so I could be a lawyer. So I was, I went ah. to like the local state university, um, you know, cause that was going to be good enough. Uh, and I started okay. majoring in math because I had done the background research to know that math majors, statistically speaking, perform the best on the LSAT. And I had a hunch that if I ended up, you know, I wanted to go to law school and the only way that was going to be really financially feasible was if I did super awesome on an LSAT and got some sort of scholarship. So Mm -hmm. I was like, screw it. I'll be a math major. I mean, I was all right at math before. um, So I could be a math major, uh, take some Latin classes, take some philosophy classes and get geared up and go be a lawyer and, Work on constitutional law, and that'll be great. Wow. Wow. Okay, so first let me just back up and say, um, jumping the net, the picture of my husband that we're referring to is on (laughs) Facebook. And it's super embarrassing. And he just did like a really like old man thing where he like got, uh, he's like hanging by his pants by this like peg in the wall because he was trying to jump out of the crawl space. So just to give a little context, um, anyway. I really think that you need to add that picture to the materials on this podcast. Because I think that's important that people have the same visual imagery that we have right now. You are so right. And I might do that. I might well do that. (laughs) Okay, so going back, you're like, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. I should focus on math because it'll make sure I'll be sure to do well on the LSAT that way. Um, And it's this is going to be great. So what happened? What happened was somewhere around my sophomore year in undergrad, I Uh, So I had kind of built up a whole bunch of community in the math department because I had federal work study and the easiest job for me to get would be tutoring math because the little math lab that where people tutored was in the math building. There's a student lounge there. I knew some number of my classes would be there and I'd want to know all the faculty. So I got the job I had on campus was tutoring math. And so for the first two years of my undergraduate degree, a whole lot of time was spent in the math department. A reasonable amount of time was spent in the philosophy department, but mostly I was doing stuff. So I'd walk to campus and I'd spend all day in the math building. Uh, But I was taking these classes and I just, it's the only way I can describe it is that I fell in love, Mm -hmm. right? I just, somebody asked me one day, I think I was working on a linear algebra exam, a take-home exam or something, and they had just seen me working forever on math. Like, I would be just working on math all the time. And somebody asked, can you imagine a day going by where you aren't doing math? Mm. And the question hit me sideways because I thought about the answer to it. I, I'm sure it was a joke throwaway question. It's like, oh, oh no, I can't. I, don't, I, I wouldn't want that day. That would be a bad day. And so oh. that was where... Yeah, I know. And so, and that was when I, my brain opened up and I was like, maybe I won't go to law school. Maybe I'll see how far I can ride this math train. And so then I pivoted a little to try to get set up to do a research experience for undergraduates, which are great. Uh, In your, the summer between your junior and senior year, you go away for 
a couple of months to some other institution and do a little math research. So I got, um, I applied to lots of those. I got one, I did that. And then my senior year, I was applying to grad schools and trying to get in somewhere fancy pants and see if I could go get a PhD. I guess what I found most interesting, I shouldn't say most interesting, but what I found very interesting when we last talked is that you said you love teaching math as um, in, in your tenure track job. And you, and you said you joked that you only got, you would, what was it? You, yeah, I would teach math for free. I got paid to grade, grade and go to faculty meetings, right? I, I, you, if you just run me in the world, I will start teaching people about math. I did it three weeks ago in a grocery store. I bought this vegetable and <laughs> the person who's checking me out is like, oh, that's a very interesting vegetable. And I was like, I was going to try to get away from you without doing this, but I'm sorry. I said, this is an example of a fractal. Look and see the spiral pattern. And I'm like pointing to it and I'm like, and you can see the self-similarity in the fact that the little spirals are made of little spirals. <laughs> I love this okay. so much. Oh, I'm glad that you appreciate that. But uh, yeah, no, I teach math for free. They pay me to grade and go to meetings. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think they know this. I <laughs> just they. I'm not sure who they are. This is one of those unknown they, but I think they know this all along. <laughs> advantage of our love of things and abuse us. Yes, yes, yes. Um, there are a lot of people um, who've been on the podcast and who I've talked to not on the podcast who, you know, a lot of academics who say very, very similar things, right? Like they right. take advantage of us because we have this sort of love for the subject, but also we have a way we want the world to sort of work and we care a lot about it. And so I'm thinking about what you and I had talked about before with you. You said this was a big part of why you wanted to teach. You wanted to be able to um, offer offer a college education to people in the same way you got as a first generation student. And, And like it was the great equalizer and all this stuff. And you had this really dreamy feeling of yeah. what, or, or vision of what it was. So say more about that. Yeah, no, I mean, my experience of public higher ed is that it did, I mean, it did for me exactly what everybody says on the shiny brochures that they send out, right? Mm-hmm. I shifted socioeconomic status by an unreasonable number of jumps because I went to college and then went on to get a PhD. I mean, I grew up really, really poor, but I, you know, somehow made it through all of the systems to be able to get a fantastic undergraduate education, which led to, you know, getting enough money, getting paid to go to graduate school and get a PhD in math. That's crazy. And so I really had this like lived sense of higher education is a meritocracy. I can't even say it now without laughing, right? And it's, <laughs> it's really the tool by which you can take students and, and improve their life and make their life better. Like this is, this is the, the golden ticket, right? This is the magic bullet for all that ails society, like a good, solid public higher education. That's something worth doing well. And I am a woman. 
in a field where only 20% of the PhDs granted in a given year come for women. And it is important for young women to see successful women teaching and still being themselves, right? Like I, I'm me in the classroom. I'm just who I am. I just happen to know more math than them. And so I thought it was super important that, like, I just had this idea that, you know, I would be doing this thing. And I loved math. I'd be participating in, you know, the mechanics of meritocracy, which is going to make our country awesome. Mm -hmm. And absolutely worth doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Find me up. Yeah, I mean, when I was interviewing for jobs, I one of the reasons I picked the school I went to is like, I want to teach those students, first generation students who have no idea, they hit the floor, they hit the their butts in the seats on the first day, and have no idea what a syllabus is, them, I want mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. So much better than the kids who come in. And I don't, I don't mean to say that if you've had, you know, your family has lots of experience with college, you're not a good student, you are, but it's so different. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just different. So I really wanted to be teaching those students, those types Same, of same, same for me. Yep. Exactly the same <laughs> yeah. experience. Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then at some point, even though you had this really dreamy sort of vision and you worked your way into this place you really wanted to be doing math every day and teaching and doing wonderful things, things started to crash down little by little. And so tell us about what started to come down on you that was unexpected. Yeah. I So, I mean, in line with my earnest appreciation and desire for higher education to function well. Not only did I want to teach math, I thought it was appropriate for faculty to be involved in things like the curricular structure of universities. And I thought having accurate representation with interacting with management was wise. So I got involved in a lot of things kind of outside of the department. I thought teaching and learning was the most important thing that we did. And so if I could help my colleagues become better teachers or even just have conversations about what was working well and what wasn't working well. So I like I jumped into higher education <laughs> like cannonball might be the right way to do it to, mm. to describe. So in my second year, I was a director of our Center for Teaching and Learning. I jumped into understanding assessment. Uh, It was a couple years in where somebody hijacked me into union work because they knew that number crunching would help make a lot of arguments, both privately and publicly. So they're like, Mm -hmm. she seems like an earnest dude. Let's get her and have her do some number crunching. And I did, right? So the school comes out with a flyer that says the faculty to student ratio is 16, which it is. They're not lying. But in your freshman and sophomore years, the class size you can expect is 35. So I got involved in all of the things, which don't recommend. <laughs> but I just I am cursed with enthusiasm and curiosity. Uh, and am in no way blessed with self-control or 
project management and understanding how to say no. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Uh, but part of that was a lot of effort went in. And then part of it was I got to see a lot of the sausage making that happens in higher ed. And so seeing that faculty have really limited control over some sorts of curricular things and understanding you know, small state colleges get more often than not under 30% of their funding from the state, but spend an inordinate amount of time trying to meet state mandates, um, most of which are unfunded, and put a whole lot of effort at the grassroots getting accreditation stuff done, right? Like we were in the same accrediting region as Harvard and Yale. And those schools have offices that make that easy to get done, right? Mm -hmm. Make their accreditation work easy to them. Like somebody writes their self-study. In the school, like we were, it had to have been somewhere around my fifth or sixth year, I wrote one of the chapters of our self-study. I mean, I wrote the curriculum section of our self-study on top of a 404 teaching load, on top of mm. service work, right? On top of having to get some amount of research done because if I didn't get anything done, I wasn't going to get tenure. So it was a lot of stuff. And then there was seeing this dark underbelly. And one of, the, one of the things that happened is the school I was at had a long-standing president, like 11 years he was president. And then we started to get into what a lot of universities get into is a churn of upper administration, right? Like there was a vice president leaving and that meant the president had to leave. And so then we had to do a new president search and then we had to do a new vice president search. And then we wanted to change the structure to add deans. And then we had, I mean, there were, at the time I left, there were untenured faculty who were on the tenure track who had never been evaluated by the same administrator more than once. And they were just constantly afraid because what if the next person wants something slightly different? And then you just start to get the feel that like a dean comes in and wants to do a project so they can put it on their resume so that they can get the next job. Yeah. And you're sitting there like, no, I really just need, I need a, we want a STEM learning lab. And we want a STEM learning lab so that we can have peer tutoring and students can have one space that they go to, to do their science and math. And we can always get a professor in there. If we have a physical space, and here, here's an option of a physical space we could use, you know, and that wasn't on the provost's agenda of stuff he wanted to do. So it wasn't on the dean's agenda of stuff he wanted to do. So it mm. wasn't going to happen. Mm. And it's just like, yeah, but your, you know, living learning community, which sounds fancy for nursing students isn't going to positively affect anything because our retention rate in nurses is 90 billion percent. Like we don't lose nurses, we lose these other kids. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> detail. Um, <laughs> and folded in on that. So some of that is like local administrative issues and other, right, and then state level issues along the lines of how math in particular gets taught, right? Like math and English are these really critical points in education. 
and there was a lot of state pressure for us to change how we said students were ready for math. And we almost had to do that. I think it's the right way of putting that forward. If mm. we didn't do that, we were going to get in a lot of trouble from the state. And that's mm. not that's not faculty driven, right? That is the state saying, and the state who funds nothing, but uses higher ed as a political ping pong ball to say, you know, colleges aren't really doing what they need to do because our employers, like we've got a lot of jobs and we don't have people qualified to do that because colleges aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's like, you haven't paid us to do what we're supposed to be doing for years and years. Why are you <laughs> getting to decide what happens next, right? If I contributed that tiny amount of money to something, I wouldn't expect to get to tell it what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then behind that, um, I got relatively deeply involved with the union that negotiated the contract for the nine state colleges. And that that was something I felt I was good at. I enjoyed doing it. There are lots of people who, you know, did that for one round of negotiating and came out and said, I'll never do that again. Um, and I didn't. I did it quite a few contracts in a row, moving to the point where I was chairing the bargaining committee. And yeah, so definitely one of the crisis points was we thought we had negotiated a fair contract. I mean, we were we were done. Uh, and through some procedure about administration and finance at the state level, said no and changed the language in the contract that hadn't been agreed. And but only change the language that was negative from from their perspective. Nothing else changed. And that's what you got. Mm. And I'd worked at this college for 10 years. The faculty at this college who, I mean, none of these people were particularly, actually, most of these people weren't particularly poor. Some were poor, right? Some, you you can go get a PhD and get a starting salary that's $40,000 is ridiculous for my, like, I don't think people understand what's going on there. But most of the pay was fine. But they hadn't seen more than a 2% increase in their salary for the entire time I was there. And it took me a while to grow up and understand how finances work. But if your pay rate is under the inflationary rate, you've got a pay cut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just, so, so now I'm at this point where I had grown up thinking higher education was a meritocracy. And if you did things right and you put in your effort, you played fair, you'd make progress. And then when I got to be a professor in higher education, all of that was like, nope, 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 nope. If the thing that you and everyone in your division thinks is should be the top priority, if that doesn't match what the provost thinks, screw it. We're going to do what the provost thinks. You negotiate a contract, you think it's fair, everybody, you know, administration and the union side think it's going through, and then the state can say no. Like, it just the floor of if you do the right work in the good way and jump through the hoops the way you're supposed to do, stuff will make progress just fell right out from underneath me. Mm. Mm. Okay. And I... It was, and part of what made it hard is that I love teaching math. And, you know, once every two years at least, I'd say, there was some student who came through the program 
And either through the math major in particular, and sometimes it wasn't even that. Sometimes it was a student I was teaching from gen ed who was never going to be a math major, but there was some connection made. And I felt like, you know, the stuff I did during this semester has made a really big difference to that one individual like that, you know, good. I'm doing this sort of thing that I'm supposed to be doing here. And I miss doing that, but the cost of doing it is you, was tremendous because you had to be open all of the time and receptive to as many different student needs as you can. And then you kind of just wait for one student to see that you're there. And they're like, oh, maybe this is a person I can rely on. Teaching well, taking care of your colleagues well, do, it's just so hard. Thinking about all the pressures on you, um, and you had said when we last talked that uh, you had a friend who was a professor at a private college in the area, and you were talking to this friend regularly about all of this stuff. And, and I think you said something like, she was like, you're angry all the time. And this isn't you. You're not an angry person. What the heck? Um, yeah. And so talk about that and then talk about sort of the moment. Because I know you said you had a nine-year plan to leave at some <laughs> point, And then that got shortened big time. So tell us about the friend. Tell us about the big conversation. What happened? Yeah. So, I mean, it's fair to say that what I end up doing, like, I, I don't feel like I'm particularly a trailblazer because I had seen someone do it before. So I had kind of this like view of like, oh, maybe that's a thing that could possibly happen um, and the world wouldn't fall down. Um, but yeah, I had close friends who I would be talking to about what's going on in life. And after a while of hearing me talk about the sort of weird stuff that would be happening in the school amongst faculty or amongst administrators or strange union stuff where you're like, I don't understand how this is happening at all. Um, right. Just she shone a light. She's like, you sound angry a lot of the time. And it's really weird for me because you're not an angry person. Mm. And I just don't. And it was just like, you know, this thing that you're doing, I think it's making you unhappy. It's making you angry, at least. And and this thing and, that you're doing is your job. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, okay. And then, yeah, yeah. And the thing that you're, yeah, the thing that I was doing is the way I felt like I needed to be doing the job. And mm -hmm. I just full disclosure because I thought it was important. I thought I needed to do a good job on all of the things mm -hmm. of all of the things that I found interesting instead of, instead of doing what a reasonable person might do and say, I only have this many hours in a day that I really want to devote to work. Half, you know, this chunk has to go to my students. This chunk should be going to my research and this chunk should be going to meetings you know, if I have extra hours in the day, I could do, like, I didn't do it that way. It was, if something's interesting, I'm going to get involved in it. And if I'm going to get involved in it, apparently I have to 
give it my all and do my very best at that thing. And I would just, I'm too interested in stuff and too much was happening. And then everything, not everything, lots of things that were happening in those little subsections would get really frustrating. And I would want it to work well and it didn't feel like it was working well. So I got angry. <laughs> and and you said that you have a hard time saying no. So these things are building on each other, building on each other, building on each other. And then you have all the stuff you need to do and you have to do a really good job at it. Then you like said a big no, a really big no, when you decided to leave the job altogether. Um, so I, like... <laughs> Like, what was that like, you know, going from that sort of extreme of I've got to just do everything and I've got to do the good work. And then you get angry. And then at what point did you process, I'm going to leave and I'm going to leave sooner than I even thought? Yeah. And so the right, the nine year plan was attached to I had become chair and our right. You can be chair for a max of nine consecutive years, which is three three year terms. And then you have to take a break. And so after I became chair, I was like, okay, here's I want to do this well. I think I can make a positive impact on our department and in our division. And I can get like this and this set up and then we can get rolling and that'll be great. And then maybe this thing that this other friend has done, which is quit. Just quit high red. Like, then I will, then I will have earned that. And I can think about doing that. And that can be my life. And so the the first year I was chair, we had deeply problematic dean of our division. And so I, I I just want to honor and respect one of the things that happened within that first year, my job, the job as a chair got doubled or tripled, because having to deal with junior faculty freaking out about what this dean was doing, having to try to, try to, um, what is it called? Uh, Coach up. Great. And be like, dude, act like you're taking notes in meetings, send out an agenda, just repeat back what you've heard people say. Like, here are some tips to have people not freak out. You're in charge of their lives now act like you care what you've said, what they've said. Um, And, you know, he doesn't do those things. So then I'm like, well, things need to be done right. So I'll coordinate the chairs in the division and we'll make agendas. I'll coordinate the chairs in the division and we'll have a meeting before the meeting with the dean to organize what we're going to have to say to the dean, right? Just bucket loads of work. So all of that is happening. And when we talk to the higher administration about it, they were like, la da 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 don't know what you mean, just doing a fine job. And I, I think I think that might have been the straw that made me go from, okay, maybe this isn't a nine-year exit plan. Maybe this is a three-year exit plan. I will do this term. Because if, if nobody is going to listen, if nothing can make the fundamental working situation of the faculty member better... Right. If the standing assumption when a faculty member says something to an administrator is you're just complaining because things are different instead of there's something valid there. It's like, I'm not sure I want to work for these people anymore because, of course, I'm angry. I just want help to do my job well. And they're telling me 
I'm expecting something unreasonable. It's like, well, the job that you're expecting me do, to do at this point is unreasonable. What, like, why am I the breaking point in this situation? So that was how the nine-year plan condensed into a three-year plan. Uh, and then uh, COVID hit. So COVID hit in the middle of my second year as chair, um, kind of right in that early spring semester. Wow, and congratulations. After... That was fun, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that was super duper fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I came back from spring break. And then, yeah, the university had a week where they were like, we're just taking this week off because we don't know what's going to happen. And we came back to fully online classes. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> I stayed... Uh, I was living alone in Massachusetts at the time, and I stayed there for, I think, six weeks to get my faculty roughly figuring out what they had to do, get my students figuring out roughly what they had to do, um, get myself feeling like I had landed on something semi-stable for the rest of the semester, uh, and then... um, I knew I didn't have to be in Massachusetts anymore, that for the next, you know, six months, nothing was going to be happening face to face, really. And so um, <laughs> and that was when I drove across the country and went to Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what brought what took you all the way to Oregon? Yeah, no, what brought me out to Oregon is so they rate this friend who had quit her job uh had she had quit her job and started essentially homesteading on a ranch in uh eastern oregon we're very close to idaho border and um uh she and her partner were financially stable enough that adding another human to the ranch uh would be great um is what it would end up being because you know (laughs) there's a large chunk of land there are some animals that need to be cared to and having three people around at least to do it is better than having two people around to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And I had been super close with both of these people for a long time. And so this was a combination. Get away from your job that's making you angry. Come live with us. We love you. Come be here forever. Um, and yeah, during, I mean, during those six weeks where I was still in Massachusetts, that was a, you don't have to be there now. It would be better for you to be here. Like the next six months are going to be hard for teachers everywhere. You don't have to make it harder on yourself by staying there. You can be where there are other people. (laughs) You, right. You can be where you have support around. And so that was kind of what got me here. But the, I mean, the nine-year plan back like back in my days where it's like, oh, I'll be a good chair for nine years and I'll make things better. And then I can, then I'll move to Oregon. It was, I mean, that was the nine year plan was after those nine years are done, then I will go to Oregon and homestead mm. with my partners. Um, mm. And then that window just kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter. <laughs> so this is the part I've been kind of excited about because this is the part <laughs> we didn't get to talk about the last time we talked and it's just what are you doing now because you said uh, you are doing a lot and you're kind of 
trying to figure out what your path is. And uh, I, I would, yeah, I just want to know, where are you? Yeah. So I, the thing that I will say on the off chance that there's someone out there who wants to do this, I very intentionally understood that the first year, maybe even two years, I needed to stop asking myself the question about what I was going to do next. Because I knew you were supposed to do well in high school because doing well in high school is how you get a scholarship so that you don't have to pay as much for undergrad. And an undergraduate degree was important. I kind of knew that like that, that was a good thing to aim for. So you do well in high school so you can go to undergrad. And then I had to do well in undergrad because I wanted to be a lawyer slash go to grad school. And then like, so you have to do well in undergrad and then go to graduate school. And I was like, I'm supposed to do the stuff they tell me to do here. So I'll do all this and then get the academic job. And you're like, okay, I'll just do all of the things people tell me to. And I had just been on a wheel of doing things forever. Mm. And I had a really strong habit of, okay, what's next? What's the next problem I need to tackle, right? What's the next thing I want to get? And I essentially told myself, like, no, a chunk of time where that is not the thing that's happening. Because I had, I felt like other people in the universe had this magic ability to decide what they wanted. And then they work towards what they wanted. And I feel like I had never practiced that at all. I had no idea what I wanted. I just did stuff. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like it was because I wanted it. I was like, just that's what you do. That's what you do. That's what you do. And then I keep doing that because other people told me like that was, you know, this is the next thing that you do. And so I'm like, okay, keep doing that. And then I, you know, I'm sitting in my office or actually not sitting in my office, I'm driving home from graduations every May as a full-time faculty member, sobbing because I just Mm. did all of the stuff, right? I had spent the whole year just getting stuff, getting the stuff done that everybody told me I had to get done. And then like clockwork, driving home from graduations, cry, because life also happened during that academic year, but I was mostly not dealing with that. I was dealing with get the thing done, right? Help the student, help this faculty member, you know, get this, get these exams graded, get the next exam out, go meet with the vice president and try to tell him he needs to do something different or everybody's going to try to get him fired, right? Just all of these things. And so part of what I have done is not try to force myself to understand what's the next kind of big project that I am going to engage on. What's the next thing and just try to chill out a little and focus on wholly different sets of skills and learning new things and trying to really revel in the fact that I'm going to be bad at lots of stuff for a while because (laughs) what if I if I had a job description right now it would be generalized ranch hand which means (laughs) Right. I, I help out with animals. I sometimes help build stuff. I sometimes help tear things down. Right. I go and get wood so that we have heat in the winter. So I had to learn how to use a chainsaw, which is just 
totally different than making a good agenda for a faculty meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And are you um, in a place where the work you do allows you to emotionally process your life, unlike the semester by semester work where you could only emotionally process at the end of the semester driving home from graduation. Yes, I absolutely am. I am. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I can note when I am out doing some subset of a chore that needs to get done. I can figure out, I can just like pay attention to how I might be feeling about it mm-hmm. and think about, oh, if what's going on now, like if I'm cranky because one of my partners doesn't put the dog bowls where I think the dog bowls should go and that makes it harder <laughs> for me to feed the dogs because the snow covered up the dog bowl and grr, 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 right? I can stop and be like, I wonder if I've been eating right. Right. Like, I wonder how, like, have I been getting enough exercise? And then if I haven't, I can be like, you know what? Today I'm gonna make some lasagna because the lasagna will be good for everyone to eat and I'll have good nutrition. Or today I'm gonna go for a five hour long walk because I haven't been outside in the world enough. And I know that being outside and getting exercise just is gonna make me happy. I'm gonna do that. That's what's gonna wow. happen. I, I want to go into town and learn from my friends, Amari and Chloe, about how to plant stuff in a useful way so it doesn't die. And then maybe I can plant stuff and maybe we will have corn in the future. <laughs> so yeah, much more. I mean, in some, like the whole project is about trying to, not the whole project, the project, Project Gem, is all about trying to <laughs> just develop this very base skill of being aware of what's going on and making an active choice between tending to it now or tending to it later. Cause it's not to say that I don't sometimes like sometimes stuff's got to get done and I'm in a bad mood and it's going to get done anyway, but I make that more actively as a choice as opposed Mm. to when I was in the job in the tenure track, fancy pants job. Right. (laughs) There was never a choice. It was always, you just have to do this now. 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 There was no, like, no, I'm going to pause and do something else for a bit. It was just Mm. always, no, you don't have to worry about how you're feeling. You just have to do this now. There's a weird sub-thread that happens through this, which I would be remiss to not point out, even though sometimes I think it makes me sound a little strange. Um, At some point maybe three or four years into the job, I started a meditation practice. Mm. Um, Unrelated to work. I wasn't, it wasn't work is so horrible. I need to meditate. There was something else that happened kind of crisis level in my life. And I had this, (laughs) I had this epiphany then of the flavor. I have spent 35 years training my mind to work all of the time in this Mm. very particular way, this very, or these very particular ways. Like there's a very verbal way, there's a very analytical way, and then there's some fun interplay between them. I have not learned how to stop those processes from happening. And I need, like, I had a crisis event happen that I, I was like, I think I maybe need to learn that skill of stopping this whirlwind thing that's happening in my brain. 
Um, and so I started a meditation practice three months before COVID hit. I had gone on my first week long meditation retreat and had a really good meditation experience. And this the meditation practice that I had been building up to before that, I think is the incremental change of making me aware that I wasn't paying attention to stuff, right? You could start to see like, I'm angry. Oh my God, I'm crying every May when I come home from graduation. Oh, now you're crying in the December graduation too. So I think there was some part of me that was not paying attention to it, but was building up the skill of noticing things. So right when March, 2020 happens and COVID happens, I'd had some practice of noticing what's going on with me. And I think that Mm -hmm. is part of what made it easier to go. Yeah, you don't have to do this. Like this thing that's happening over here doesn't have to be what happens. Wow. I'm familiar with um, the idea of being in a particular sort of state in your, like in your nervous system, right? And when you're in this Mm -hmm. sort of calm, connected state, you can have a vision of how you want your life to unfold. And when you're in sort of a fight flight state, you can also have a vision <laughs> of how you want your life to unfold, but that's not necessarily a vision you want to live out. <laughs> yes. And so yes. I'm wondering, um, what was the vision, if you can describe it that way, I don't know how you want to describe it, but what did you know you wanted to keep in your life um, once you started really noticing your life as it was. Um, and what did you know you wanted to get rid of, I guess? Uh, yeah, no, this is, this is a good question. I'm going to like get on my therapist couch now and tell you true things. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I, so when I did this, so yeah, just a little bit of backstory to contextualize the stuff that you're going to get in a minute. So yeah, in November of 2019, I knew I was on a three-ish year plan, right? So that's about the time I like, I knew I was committing to a three-year plan in, you know, I'd finish off two and a half more years of being chair and then I was going to quit and leave and go live on a farm and then see what happened next. The first person I wanted to tell that was my mom. And so I wrote my mom a letter before I went home for Christmas to say, I had decided these things, this feels right. Um, but I wanted to tell her in a letter so that if she had any set of negative feelings about it, she could work those out on her own. And then when I saw her in December, we could have a discussion where she could, you know, this sounds crazy because of X, Y, or Z, or, you know, that really shocked me, but I think I'll be okay with it. Um, and so like I wrote down what kind of some of what was going on. And one of the ways I framed it for her then was I have fed my brain for 40 odd years on doing new and hard things. And I have reached the state in this job where the new and hard things I have to learn and figure out how to do well in order to be successful are not worth my energy. Like, Mm. I don't want to learn how to convince a dean to do the right thing. Like, I just don't. I don't want to do that. That's not a useful effort of my time. I I want to shift now 
And part of the things I want to keep doing, so this is to answer that question, I like doing new and hard things. I like learning stuff. I really like learning how to do new things. It's painful because (laughs) I'm an adult. And so I know that much of what I'm doing now is just not good. Like I made sheep feeders last year. Uh, and the amount of time between those sheep feeders being upright and then being on the ground <laughs> was depressing. Um, but I've made new sheep feeders this year, so I'm getting slightly better at it. So I knew I wanted to be back in a position of being a novice and figuring out how to do stuff. Cool. And the other thing that I completely accepted <laughs> is that I will want to help people. Mm. Right. Mm. One of the threads that happened in the right in the professor job was I wanted to help all of the students. I wanted to help all the faculty. I wanted to help all of the administrators. I wanted to help people do things better. And that is a part of me that I don't think I'll ever be able to get rid of. And I don't know that I want to get rid of it. I mean, parts of it have a bad stuff associated with them. So I want to work on that. But given that I want to be, I want to help people, I need to make sure I put myself around other people who know that, don't take advantage of it, and want to help me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, which is, I don't want to suggest that any of my students ever took advantage of me or any of my faculty colleagues took advantage of me. You will notice I am not including administrators in that because I I cannot wholeheartedly say, I don't think they took advantage of this threat of me. I think they did. I think they knew I was a useful tool and used it. But I mean, I I put a lot into helping people and I'm just gonna do that. So I'm not sure the right place for me is to be in a job where I'm going to interact with 150 students every three months and 500 faculty who are going to look at me for help with a lot of things, mm-hmm. right? A smaller subset of people to be useful to is going to be something that I can do and be myself and just not be completely overwhelmed or feel like a bad person when I say no. Right. I don't know. A faculty member comes comes into your office and says, I don't understand the contract and I really need more leave because I didn't expect to have this baby. This is this is not what I thought was going to be happening right now. And I've already I mean, the first baby isn't I need. How can we figure out a way that I can get more leave? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say no to that person. I I don't have it in me to say no to that person. Or just send them to the HR department to figure it out when I know damn well that in HR's interest to have them have the least amount of family time as they can. Uh-uh. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So okay. things I wanna things I things I know are in my future are trying to learn new things, being bad at it for a while and then hopefully getting better. Um, and looking after a smaller subset of people. You're totally embracing the process of transition. And that is like, in my mind, and you tell me where I'm wrong, that is your goal right now to just embrace transition. Yes. 
because because I just I cannot like humans are habit machines, right? It's just it's why parents put so much effort into getting their children to brush their teeth and eat vegetables, right, and get some exercise. Everybody knows humans are habit machines, and I had a really really bad habit, and so I need to completely break down that pathway and 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 I just and I don't I want to I want to be 100% honest about this this is hard I'm not sure that there has been a week I mean it might be as small of a unit as a day I think maybe I've gotten a day okay three days I don't think (laughs) a three-day period has gone by where I haven't thought oh I could right and it's like oh I could I could be teaching at the local grade school. Like me teaching math at the local grade school would be amazing for those kids. Like, and I, I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to brag, but like a PhD trained person who studied growth mindset and how you teach kids and what they really need to know when they get to middle school, that would mm. be amazing. Oh, I could collaborate with my other friend who wanted to do this curriculum review business where we make sure textbooks and curricular materials that schools are using are really aligned with this sort of thing. I could totally do that. I mean, this morning, walking into my room, like I could really just hook up with that local restaurant that has just started down the way and I could be their baker. I could do the baked goods for them because I'm pretty good at baking and I see this other, I could make cinnamon rolls every morning or bagels. Like I could just have a weak agenda. So I don't want anyone to think like, because I'm sounding like I'm just embracing that. I don't know. No, every day. What should I be doing? 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 And then having two partners, two partners that walk by me and are like, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> don't do that anymore. Right? Like just the constant reinforcement of like, that's not what you're supposed to be doing now. Just don't. No. No. Like wow. we came up with a rule early on two years that I could live in here before I could volunteer for any board cannot serve on any board doesn't matter because that would just be feeding the monkey of this habit of do this stuff, do this stuff, do this stuff, do this stuff. And it just, no, it's like quitting smoking cold Turkey. I love this so much. Okay. You tell me (laughs) what if people find themselves in a similar situation where they are, you know, in their, you know, fancy, like you said, tenure track job and things are falling apart around them and they are not loving it and they're angry or whatever negative emotions they're feeling and they're noticing that it's not going well. Give us something, any sort of advice, (laughs) any, uh, maybe it it doesn't have to be advice, but anything you would tell somebody, what would you tell yourself back then? Oh, yeah, I, I, I would have tried to tell myself that projects aren't puppies. Mm. When you get one, you don't have to stay with it until it's dead which is how I feel about puppies. I think if you adopt a dog, you're committing to that dog for the rest of that dog or your life, whichever happens first. Um, But you should get skilled at leaving some projects in the middle. 
which I just, nobody gets that in graduate school. <laughs> in graduate school, yeah. it's all about completing the project. Um, because I, I mean, a, I do have regrets about leaving so suddenly, but I really got to the point where I felt like there was no way I could stay because I had, I would have to keep doing all of these things. So some sort of having an exit plan for projects that you do, like understanding, like, what are the things I want to accomplish in this project? And once you get there, have an exit plan to get out of them. I mean, trying to have a real honest discussion with yourself and the people who care about you in your life about what your real priorities are. I remember really clearly when I was a kid, my mom gave me the best advice in the whole wide world about um, drugs and alcohol. Um, And her advice wasn't, don't ever do them, they're the worst, they'll ruin you. Um, She said, you know, your friends and your family and your work are important things. And don't ever let drugs or alcohol get in the way of your friends, your family, and your work, right? Mm. You need to be able to take care of yourself. You need to maintain healthy relationships with friends and with family. And if drugs and alcohol start to get in the way of those things, and you know they're the problem, drugs and alcohol are the problem. So have conversations with your friends and your family and the people who care about you to decide what you're really going to give to the job. Because that's what's happening. You're giving time and effort and mental space to a job. And it's important work, but that doesn't mean it has to have every last bit of free space Mm. that happens in your life. And so, right, having the conversation with people that you care about, like, you know, where are these priorities and what's the stuff how much do I have to put in this job? Right. Where do I really want this to be? Um, But I just also would point to the fact that the system is totally playing off the fact that you love your discipline and you love your students, right? That you love Mm. teaching. Like the universities function on the fact that you will (laughs) do things that are above and beyond because you love, your discipline because you love your students and sometimes because you love your colleagues. If you want to get in touch with Jen, if you want to talk to her a little bit more, get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Yeah. And then I can make sure you have a good email address that people like, I will give you the email address that if people reach out to you, you can pass it on to them. Does that sound good? Yep. That sounds perfect. Jen, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.